Welcome everyone to the CNS Journal Club podcast, and thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Kimberly Huang from the Department of Neurosurgery at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, and my practice focuses on tumors. It is my honor today to moderate the discussion of a very interesting article in the newest edition of the Red Journal, Hot Off the Presses, entitled Testing the Impact of Protocolized Care of Severe Traumatic Brain Injury Patients Without Intracranial Pressure Monitoring, the ICE Protocol. TBI management is always a fan favorite, and today we welcome Dr. Chestnut, the lead author, Dr. Figueroa, our guest expert, and Dr. Trailer, our resident co-host for the discussion. Let's start off with Dr. Chestnut. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? <clears throat> My name is Randy Chestnut. I'm at Harborview Medical Center in Seattle. I'm a neurosurgeon and intensivist. Uh, I'm the director of neurotrauma here. Essentially take all of the uh, head injuries that come in um, th the morning after they come in, which is sort of how Harborview works. Wonderful. Dr. Figueroa, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. How you doing? I'm uh, Stephen Figueroa. I'm a neurointensivist here at UT Southwestern. I also work at Parkland Memorial Hospital and run the neuro ICU uh, at that hospital and take care of many patients with severe traumatic brain injury. Great. And Dr. Trailer, could you tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Uh, I'm Jeff Trailer, and I'm a PGY3 resident at UT Southwestern as well. I work with Dr. Figueroa at uh, Parkland uh, Memorial Hospital and our university hospital. Great. It's really wonderful to have everyone. Dr. Chestnut, could you give the audience just a brief review uh, of the article, the findings, and maybe some of the key conclusions to get them up to speed for the discussion? Um, this is phase one of a two-part trial funded by NINDS uh, through the Fogarty International uh, Division of NIH. Um, the we What we wanted to do was basically look at what impact we had had on quote-unquote standard care when we did the best trip randomized trial, uh, we were interested in sort of what Hawthorne effect we had created, uh, because obviously we would like to create that environment at other hospitals and LMICs. So we thought one good place to look was the protocol. When we went to do the trial, when we went to set it up, we had a protocol for intracranial pressure monitored patients because we had, that's been in the literature forever. Um, you know, obviously, it's the the academics and high resource centers that publish, and we tend to have available ICP monitors, et cetera. So we published on ICP, and we actually ended up in a situation where um, randomized trials require protocols on in whatever arms in the various arms, and we didn't actually have a protocol going in for the management of non-monitored patients because it just hasn't been a topic of interest for the publication. So we had to create one and we did. It was the Imaging and Clinical Examination Protocol, ICE, the ICE protocol. And that was described in the, uh, in the grant application and in the supplementary material in the publication. And so we decided to see what or at least to study what the effect of protocolizing care using this protocol might have had on outcomes. Uh, we obviously had groups that were used to it. We had the centers from the best trip trial uh, that had used the ICE protocol already. And so we collected a group of centers in sort of 
regionally and economically similar situations that were not using a protocol. And we prospectively collected data comparing outcomes and treatment variables, et cetera, from both of those groups. So we had the group that used the ICE protocol and was familiar with it. And parenthetically was also familiar with taking care of patients under study conditions. And we had a group of new centers that did not use a protocol. And we, we looked at the treatments that were delivered and the outcomes. And what we ended up finding after we adjusted for differences between the, the treatment environments and the patient populations, et cetera, uh, were that the groups using the protocol had significantly better outcome than the groups that were not treated using a protocol. Our, our feelings on that were that, that we seemed to see the effect of protocolization. We couldn't say it was the protocol per se that did it. We actually felt that the safest thing to say was that protocolization, whatever that means, I mean, it's kind of a neologism, but um, uh, was the, the effector of the benefit and suggested that protocolization of care decreasing treatment variability, et cetera, was something that should be considered in the management of brain injured patients. Yes, very interesting. Uh, Dr. Figueroa, uh, since you are neurointerventional, uh, another neurointerventionalist, what, um, I'm interested in what kind of questions you want to bring to discussion for this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Dr. Chestnut, is, you're probably the world's expert on TBI care in South America at this point with the best trip trial in this protocol you did. Um, I was interested to hear you talk about how the um, most of the best practices come from you know, large academic level one trauma centers here in the United States. Can you talk about how the differences in South America for traumatic brain injury care differ than here in the US? Well, we're pretty spoiled in high <laughs> resource countries. It isn't just the US, obviously. Uh, uh, UK, Europe, there's uh, Australia. Um, there's a lot of places with really good care integrated across the pre-hospital situation, the ICU, in-hospital, and then after discharge. In Latin America, it, it's really all about the hospital. Pre-hospital care is pretty primitive. Um, we You get sort of transported to hospital in a vehicle with very, very little done in the back. Um, and then you arrive and you're assessed. Uh, the resources aren't the same. There are intensivists and there are not many ICU beds in most hospitals. You know, we tend to run to a fairly high percentage of ICU beds in our acute care hospitals. These are not trauma centers for the most part. They may be centers that see a lot of trauma, but there's really no, we're all kind of spoiled with trauma surgery, trauma intense, trauma, trauma docs, whatever you want to call them. Uh, that's not had much penetrance in Latin America. So it's brought into an, an often very busy emergency department with a very limited ICU bed availability. They're assessed in the emergency department by neurosurgery uh, and uh, usually, and then they're on their way to ICU. So then they're seen by intensive medicine. They may, may or may not have an ICU bed. And there's actually quite a, a population of what we call orphan patients, pacientes huerfanos, that don't go to ICU because there's no bed. 
and they end up staying in the ward in, in the emergency department in sort of an ersatz ICU environment, but with less less observation, less fewer interventions, and and a lower level of care. If they make it to ICU, these are good intensivists, and it's very much hands-on intensive medicine down there. Uh, they they're really stuck into their patients. The, Nursing hasn't been brought up nearly to the same level down there. So you can't tell your nurse to titate a presser to a certain pressure. You end up kind of doing that yourself. So you can see how much patient contact you end up having. And so I think the imaging and clinical examination protocol benefited from a lot of hands-on by very interested and intelligent and dedicated intensivists. Um, and then once you're in ICU, then, then that's where the protocol took over. In other words, when to treat, how to treat, what agents to use, how to progress, uh, the use of CT scanning. CT scanning isn't free down there. I mean, it's not free up here, but but down there, there are cases where if the patient or their family or whatever mon money availability there is, has to be available to get a CT. And you know, we, we end up specifying the number of CTs, the minimum number of CTs. So the, the one place where the data suggests that we're quote unquote less efficient, in other words, more resources are used in the protocolized group, there's actually more CTs obtained in the protocolized group, which is really us leveraging CTs. It's hard to do ICE type practice, imaging and clinical examination without imaging. And, and that was actually a benefit of, of the protocols. Um, they do a really good job in the ICU. Obviously, they, they base their treatments on close clinical examination, imaging, uh, and in the best trip trial and in this trial, they did a pretty good job of care. Uh, they, they didn't have the availability of protocols. They knew about the protocols. Um, uh, and, and I cannot say that the type of treatment that we had de delivered to non-monitor patients in the best trip trial was unknown to them. Um, they all were quite familiar with that trial. Uh, so, so it isn't an, env an environment that was completely naive, I have to admit that. Um, and then afterwards, you know, at these patients then leave ICU, go to the, the wards, there isn't the availability of physiotherapy and rehabilitation medicine. And so after they leave hospital, well, we have prospective data now on over 1,200 patients from Latin America. We've had none go to inpatient rehab. So, so that's another difference there. Now that's distributed equally in both groups. You know, so it isn't really a, a variable that <clears throat> preferentially influences one group or the other, but um, that's sort of the reality. Yeah, but the, the availability of neurosurgery, I have to say, is a bit limited. Um, that is not how neurosurgeons make their living down there by working at trauma hospitals. They're, they generally have a responsibility to the hospital to work there as often as the case in the US in order to have privileges at the hospital, you have to take call. But they also have a second job, so to speak, in the afternoon where they do their private work and that's, that's the way they make their living. So neurosurgical availability isn't usually 24 seven or as readily available and so the intensivists actually are very stuck into the care of these patients, very stuck in. They, they make a lot of the major decisions and uh, 
the treatments are really directed by intensive medicine. I think that's a model really for most LMICs, not just Latin America. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Um, yeah, I, I definitely noticed that in the, in the trial that there wasn't a lot of neurosurgical interventions in both of the groups. Um, so that kind of explains that part of not having uh, neurosurgery availability, you know, um, all the time for those hospitals. Huge deal down there. Basically, the intensivists get a a neurologically injured patient in their ICU, and as you know, having done intensive medicine, you didn't get a lot of training in neuro intensive care in your training. It's pulmonology, cardiology, FEN, infectious disease, etc. That's what we get in intensive medicine when we're training. Neuro is not really a core discipline in intensive medicine yet. It's, it's changing, I hope. But essentially what they are is they get a patient with whom they're not particularly comfortable placed in their ICU. And, and that's really the impetus towards theirs. They're really having a great interest in protocols. Yeah. Did you notice any major differences between the protocolized group and the non-protocolized hospitals in terms of the management, management styles? I think I noticed in the interventions used, there was a lot of hyperventilation used in the uh, non-protocolized group. Do you think that had an influence on outcomes for these patients at all? Well, not all these hospitals have co-oximeters in the hospital. So a lot of times they set a ventilatory rate, but they don't get the, the, the gas values back right away. And so a lot of times this is sort of an incidental hyperventilation. We record it as a hyperventilation because BCO2 is low, but, but it's not always what we would do up here is adjust the minute ventilation until we got low PACO2 and then, then monitor it closely and keep it there. Um, now, I think that, that the, the management styles were pretty much the same. Close observation, looking for neurologic deterioration, uh, repeated exams by the same person. You mentioned the challenges, I think, of imaging, you know, in the ICE protocol um, in LMIC um, from a logistics, obviously, and resources standpoint. Given your prior works and trials, both in ICP monitoring and non-ICP monitoring now in this, you know, published paper for TBI treatment in LMIC, um, where do you think, this is a little bit more of a future directions question, where do you think we should be focusing our development in severe TBI for LMIC? Is it cheaper ICP monitoring, more accessible ICP monitoring devices? Is it more standardized medical management? Or is it cheaper and more readily accessible imaging? What do you think might give us the biggest bang for our buck, like upfront? Well, it's all about dollars. Yeah. I mean, it's really about limited number of dollars. Where do you put them? I, I wouldn't put them in ICP monitoring given the expenses of ICP monitoring there. Um, I would buy another ICU bed if I had my druthers. That's really what they need. They need ICU beds. Um, they have good doctors, they have good nursing. And then pre-hospital is really sort of the wild, wild west too. So th they could easily benefit with pre-hospital care uh, focus. Um, so, I mean, ICP monitoring makes things easier because you have a number to chase. Um, I'm not, still not convinced we're chasing the number correctly, even in high resource countries where we do have all these monitors, but but it certainly makes things easier. Um, Protocolization, I think, is very useful, and I can tell you that a recent survey of Latin American critical care centers um, found that over 80% of the centers that don't routinely monitor ICP are using 
the protocol that we developed um, is the second phase of this called the crevice protocol. Um, that's had a really high penetrance in, in South America, Latin America. Um, so they're really looking for guidance in care, really, really looking for it. But I think in terms of spending money, it's ICU beds. I think they're just way understaffed in ICU beds. Yeah, that's a, that's a great insight. Yeah, thank you. That makes a lot of sense. You mentioned um, there are barriers to protocolizing care. And what exactly does you know protocolizing care mean? Yeah, it can mean lots of different things. And there's obviously discussion even in um, high-income countries or HICs, right, about the pros and cons of that. Um, do you feel, and you touched on this a little bit, um, are these the same barriers to protocolizing care in the ICUs we see for LMIC versus um, what we have in um, high-income countries? And if not, what differs? Well, you don't want to protocolize things down to where you stop thinking. I mean, that's kind of one of the theoretical objections to it. But again, most of these people are just not comfortable with patients. They just haven't had the training. They're, you know, they know all the ventilator modes. They know all of the surviving sepsis steps. Um, but most of them can't classify a CT scan or readily rattle off the Glasgow coma scale. So that's just, they, they want guidance. They really, we recently had a care meeting in Lima, Peru with 1200 intensivists, a session on traumatic brain injury uh, care that was in parallel with some of the most famous pulmonologists in the world, uh, John Marini, uh, uh, Gattinoni, um, some real names were there. We, we we were standing room only and we lasted an hour and 20 minutes past our the end of our session because of the interest of the intensivists in in neurointensive care. I, I think you know this is a team sport neurotrauma and I really think that we need to approach it as a team sport and and protocolization decreases this terrible thing when you switch attendings and suddenly the attending, says, oh, I don't use mannitol, I just use hypertonic saline, and I hyperventilate everybody. And, and I'm not sure that's good for patients. That's, I think, what the protocolization effect suggests. Um, and it certainly drives caregivers nuts. Uh, but I think, I, I think there's a tremendous interest, and I think the organization of care so that it doesn't depend on where you go, how you get treated. Um, we've seen that from the center data from Andrew Moss, that it's there's a tremendous variability and and I, and the general feeling is that that is not something we want to we want to promulgate yes absolutely everyone getting homogenous care no matter where you go is great i can tell you though interestingly enough since this is a two part study we have just finished analysis of part 2 and the same sort of things have been found we took the no protocol group, and we gave them the consensus developed protocol, which is called the crevice protocol. And then we took the ice protocol group and we gave them that protocol as well. And protocolization benefited in all arms of that study. So the durability of our findings seems quite good um, in terms of what this paper says and what the next paper will say. Very interesting. Dr. Trailer, do you have any questions for Dr. Chestnut in our discussion today? Yeah, uh, thank you, Dr. Chestnut, for coming in and joining us on the podcast. Um, I really enjoyed reading uh, your paper. Um, I was reading that there was a difference often in uh, 
nation, nation of origin for these protocol uh, uh, centers versus non-protocolized. Did you notice any natural, or uh, I'm sorry, national or cultural biases, biases on treatment of TBI? You touched on this a little bit earlier, talking about how um, there were lower rates of decompression just because of the way that neurosurgical care was um, uh, sort of divvied out. But were there was there one country over another that did seem to decompress more or was more aggressive about any particular management strategy? No, I wouldn't say it varied so much by country. Again, it varies a lot by individual. Um, all of these people are really stuck in. It's harder to make a decision to decompress someone when you don't have a monitor in their head. Um, and I can tell you that because of the lack of ICU beds, you get a young person with a diffuse injury three coming in with working pupils and a reasonable motor score, and they may decompress them if they don't have an ICU bed available. Um, you know, we would monitor them, and if they didn't have intracranial hypertension, we wouldn't do anything. But I'm just saying that the use, the indications for decompression in LMICs is is somewhat different. There's an indication that we don't consider in research-rich environments. I didn't notice it by country, though. It was really more individual, more yes. hospital, which they had each their own style because of the ICU team and the neurosurgery team. I see. Thank you. Um, another question I had was, um, you know, your exclusion criteria, you know, was was uh, very thorough at standardizing. But did you notice any patterns of injury based on country of origin or based on location? What was the main uh, issue here? Was it MBCs, MCCs? What did you see a lot of? Uh, road traffic accidents. Yeah, everybody's on motorcycles with or without helmets. Um, and they're all over the place. And there may be a whole family on a motorcycle. Um, yeah, and 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 the 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 vehicles don't have airbags. They may or may not have seatbelts. The seatbelts may or may not be used, um, and that's why the World Bank data suggests that trauma, as as you improve your your economic status, trauma in, increases for quite some time until you reach a certain level. At which point, the the affordability of safety equipment works its way into your way of life. But actually, it's a, it's a young population. We didn't see a lot of the elderly that we see that come in and trip and fall. That doesn't show up. Also, interestingly, there's a lot of diffuse injury three patterns, swollen brains that come in in young people who end up doing fairly well. I rather think that's secondary insults in the pre-hospital environment that cause maybe maybe dysautoregulation or hyperemia or something, and the brain looks swollen on the first CT, um, it's it's not quite as onerous as it is in our, our environment. Um, but yeah, young people, road traffic accidents, for sure, and, and transport times that are not necessarily short. Thank you. And uh, were there any features of the protocol that you think that other countries that have available ICP monitors would be able to adopt? I know that you talked a little bit about how just protocolization itself is very beneficial, but were there any specific aspect of the protocol you think that it would be useful for some countries in the in the U.S. or elsewhere to utilize? Well, yeah, actually, it'll come out more in the next paper where we discuss the crevice protocol, the consensus revised ICE protocol, because that has uh, indications for treatment based on major and minor criteria, which I think would be very useful 
for screening patients for placement of ICP monitors um, using non-invasive or readily available indicators. Uh, predict we had the predictors we had for an ICP of 22 were 94% sensitive. The specificity was less than 50%, but it was picking up patients that were likely to have intracranial hypertension. Um, yeah, I, I do think that protocolization is, I think, the money. I think just getting together with your team at your hospital, and we've got the CIBIC protocols, uh, CIBIC 1 and 2, which are, which are being put into the American College of Surgeons uh, TQIP uh, recommendations. Um, that's a good model to use when discussing neurotrauma care at your own institution and trying to come up with protocols. Uh, you know, you, can, you don't have to adopt these. You can adapt them. But I think decreasing treatment variability and getting everybody kind of on the same page is probably what we see the benefit in this paper and in the next one. Thank you. That's all I have. Dr. Chestnut, were your variables you're looking at in terms of predicting intracranial hypertension based on CT or clinical exam or a combination of both of those? Well, there's two flavors. Actually, um, the Crevice protocol has been published. It was published in Journal of Neurotrauma in 2020, and it's in there. Um, there are major criteria which are all based on CT. Marshall 3, Marshall 4, non-evacuated mass lesion, et cetera has a high likelihood of having intracranial hypertension. If you don't have those, then there are minor criteria and two or more of the minor criteria, pupillary exam, diffuse injury two, uh, motor score, um, those can be used to, to reach the criteria of suspected intracranial hypertension. Um, yeah, and those were, those, those were specified in the second because when do you start treatment? Who do you treat? That's a big question when you don't have a number. That's a, And then weaning off treatment. How do you wean them off without knowing that their ICP is not rebounding? Um, that speaks to the, the usefulness of ICP monitoring, even if it doesn't show intracranial hypertension, the clinical utility. Um, so I, I do think that, I mean, those are out there. And I think that such criteria, you know, may well assist us in the future in determining who we want to monitor and, and maybe what flavor monitors we put in. Great. Well, I think we are nearing the end of our time. I would like to thank our excellent panel and guests for their very good discussion. I certainly learned some things. Um, thank you to our loyal listeners for continuing to support us. Uh, we hope you learned something new today to help in your practice. And do remember, you can obtain 1.5 CME, which is complimentary to all CNS members. The link to the CME activity is available in the online education catalog at the CNS.org. Uh, see you all next month. <laughs>